electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And it is time now for The Exchange. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly once again. Here is what is ahead. Fed fallout. Reaction to another big rate hike. It's going to hit every aspect of the economy from debt to housing and maybe the stock market. Tech stocks exposed when rates rise. And it shows. A NASDAQ now down 10% in just a month. Big names like Apple, Amazon, Alphabet all getting hit. But is now the time to buy. And FedEx shocked the world with its dire revenue warning. Now the company reports for real. Will it change the narrative? We'll trade that as well as Costco ahead of their numbers coming up in earnings exchange. Well, let us begin now with the markets. Dom Chu, a very welcome and respected afternoon off. So you got me. Let's talk about it. The Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ, well, they are all in the red. This is Coinbase Global, by the way. They're down 5.5%. Technology, I guess you consider them part of technology, getting hit the hardest. Now, within the sector, technology, not crypto, Look at that. There we go. The chip stock seeing some of the biggest losses, AMD, NVIDIA, on semi, all down 4 or even 5%. The restaurant trade also getting clobbered. Darden, that is the parent company of Olive Garden, reporting same-store sales. They came in short of estimates. Yeah, and as you might imagine, food and beverage costs also rose slightly more than expected. Have you eaten out recently? Have you seen the prices? Chipotle and Brinker International falling as well. They're down 4 and 5%. And a pair of home building stocks moving in opposite directions right now. You got KB Home down 4%, Lennar up 2.5%. Both reporting better than expected earnings, but both falling short on the sales side with the housing market slowdown weighing on orders for new homes. KB Home taking a bigger hit on that front with new orders down 50% in the third quarter versus just 12% over at Lennar. Maybe some geography at work where they're building homes, where they're based KB primarily on the West Coast. All right, there your numbers. Now, let's dig a little deeper and begin with the Fed decision fallout and the impact on your money. And as always, we've got every angle of the story covered from macro to Main Street to the markets. Steve Leishman looking at what what is next for the Fed and Fed hikes around the world. Diana Olick is all over the impact to your home, the mortgage market and the housing market overall. And Bob Pisani is at the NYC with how the Fed's hawkish statement might impact Wall Street's earnings outlook. But Steve, let us start with you, I don't know if you slept any in the last 24 hours, but this is a big story moving everything. Yeah, uh, n- not a lot of sleep and no place to hide, uh, Brian, anywhere in the world from rising interest rates. Global central banks today reacting to their own inflation problems and to the Fed's outsized rate hikes trying to keep pace. The one major exception you can hide in Istanbul, well, Kind of, sort of. I'll get to that in a second. UK raising rates by 50 basis points. Three of the nine voters wanted to go 75. Norway up by 50. Indonesia up by 50. Switzerland 75. Japan keeping rates unchanged, but doing a foreign currency intervention for the first time since 1998. Turkey, though, always going its own very strange way, cutting rates amid very, very high inflation. 
by 100 basis points and, of course, weakening its currency there. All of this coming after the Fed's third 75 base point increase, signaling more to come than markets expected. Here's the outlook for the Fed, uh, their own outlook now, 4.4%. That's almost a percentage point higher than it was before. 4.6 for 2023, topping market expectations. Significantly, Fed Chair Powell said he thinks it's likely the Fed actually hits that forecast, so he embraced it. Powell said there may come a time when the Fed stops and waits to see what impact it has on the economy, places like housing that Diana's going to tell you about. But he said now, Brian, is not that time. Yeah, I mean, first off, Turkey, to your point, the Fleetwood Mac of essential banks going their own way. I mean, I don't know how that's going to play out. We're going to find out. Uh, Steve, I saw you try to pin down Chair Powell yesterday. You asked about linear moves. Basically, can you, why not just take sort of a pause between meetings he kind of dodged and weaved. And, of course, he was, he's not just going to say, oh, Steve, you're right. You know, we're just going to take a big pause. Is there a chance they do take a, take a breath between meetings? I, I think there is a chance, but the data has to really cooperate. I, I think what I may not have appreciated when thinking, I talked to some people today about Powell's answer to that question, is, is the Fed was very disconcerted about the market's reaction in June and all the work that it had to do to get the market back. The, the market, as you remember, had a rally from June, uh, interest rates came off, and the Fed had to do a lot of work over the summer, uh, punctuated, you remember, Brian, by that uh, Jackson Hole speech by the chairman to get back the tightening of financial conditions that it thinks is necessary to slow this economy. And so any notion of a pause, any give, could potentially give back those hard-won gains from the Fed. So there may be a pause out there, Three months down the road, six months down the road, maybe after they get done doing another 100 base points by the end of the year, or 125. But Powell's not going to let on for that right now. All right, Steve Leisman down in D.C. Steve, thank you very much. All right, well, from macro markets to Main Street, how will the Fed decision affect home buyers and home builders? Diana Olick, also in D.C., here with more on that. Diana. Well, Brian, in order to understand, we need to take a close look at affordability, of course, and how rates played into that in the past. Take a look historically at the share of your income used for a monthly payment. It tracked right along with interest rates until the subprime mortgage boom. Then it split because people didn't get 30-year fixed mortgages. They got no down payment teaser rate loans, so they basically paid nothing for a house. Prices went way up, but of course, as we all know, a massive crash ensued. Then the lines moved closer again, but not quite together because the Fed kept rates low so the economy didn't crater. Fast forward to now, and a massive split again. Why? Because the government again stepped in due to the pandemic, and mortgage rates hit more than a dozen record lows, pushing home prices up over 40% in just two years. Suddenly now, rates more than double in a matter of months, thanks to the Fed's push to ease inflation. So now the median home price as a percentage of income is up about 46% in just two years, and rates are well over 6%. That means home prices, which are already starting to soften pretty quickly, will likely soften further. Now, whether that's good or bad news, it depends on where you sit in the market, buyer, seller, investor, or homeowner. Brian? Well, there's two sides to your point. I mean, if you own a home, you don't want prices to go down. If you're buying a home, you need prices to come down because rates are Unless up. Unless you're selling I mean, your home. I mean, are you a first-time buyer or are you a current home buyer? Because you don't want prices to go down if you need to make enough money to buy the new expensive home, right? Fair enough. Do you, you think there's a, a, a limit to how high mortgages go? Just some absolute, as Steve might call it, just, you know, demand destruction? 
Well, you know, we did see in, uh, what was it, back in 1980 when mortgage rates hit 18% and the housing market just crashed down. Sales were down 50%, I believe, back then. Of course, we all know I wasn't alive, right? But no, I was. Mm. Um, but we, we don't expect the Fed to let that happen, right? We expect to see rates probably in the 6% range. I've heard some say it could push towards 7%, but you know, barely three months ago, people were saying, oh, we're looking at 5.5% for the end of this year. So I think it's really a toss up how high they go. I don't see them above 7%. Yeah, there's no 18. I mean, that's, that's, there's no way that's that happening nice. again, right? I mean, we're not, we're not gonna see a 10% mortgage in the next five years. No. No, there we go. Diana, thank you very much for those who may still have an arm. All right, not, not an arm, but, you know, adjustable rate mortgages. All right, so what is the bottom line for stocks and your money? Well, that all depends on the bottom line for corporate America earnings. Bob Pisani is here to explain that and how rates, Bob, impact everything. Yeah, they really do. And remember, mortgages and uh, bonds compete with the stock market for yields. The Fed, higher and longer mantra is the problem. This creates a very wide range of potential outcomes for stocks. So the direction of stock prices, it's good to be reminded what determines stock prices. Three factors really matter here. First, dividends. Second, the direction of future earnings estimates. Are they going up or down? What's the direction? And the multiple you're willing to put on those estimates. This multiple is how much are you willing to pay for a future stream of earnings. So here's the problem. We don't know what the right numbers should be for earnings or the multiple. Nobody can agree right now. So right now, for example, earnings for 2023, they're expected to be up 8%, but a lot of people disagree. In a recession, earnings can and do go negative. Should we assume a recession? Some people are, some people aren't. Should we go in between and assume, okay, earnings are going to be flat for 2023? Or should we assume they're going to be down 20%, which could very well happen in a very serious recession? The same with the multiple or the P.E. ratio, as we call it. When the economy and earnings are growing, you might pay a higher multiple, say 17, 18, even 19 times forward earnings. But if we're entering a recession, a serious recession, no, you might only pay 13 or 15 times forward earnings. So which is it? Are we in a mild slowdown or are we in a serious recession? No one can agree, Brian. So there's a very wide range of outcomes on the models. The wider the potential outcome, the more volatility you can get because one day bears are predominating, the next day the bulls are predominating, and nobody can agree on where we should be going. Brian? Bob Pisani, look at stocks. Bob, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. All right, stocks continuing overall to move lower after posting a big loss yesterday in response probably to the Fed's latest rate hike. But your next guest sees a window of opportunity for investors in the medium term, saying that another big market plunge is not likely this year. Joining us now is Barry Bannister, chief equity strategist at Stiefel. Barry, uh, you got to calm our nerves a bit. We had Scott Minard on here from Guggenheim. He says 20% could happen. Of course, that was 5% ago. Uh, Nouriel Rabini, whatever you think of that, says maybe a 40% headline is coming. You don't think we're going to get a big flush, do you? No, no. When you, when you think about what happened, I mean, if you inflation adjust the S&P 500 index, which is what you have to do to look at any long period, we had a 27.3% decline in the first half. We bounced up through August, and then we got Jackson Hole. Uh, we're now back in real terms, inflation adjusted, to that June low, 36.66, if you inflation adjust. So the question is, do we break down to new lows? And for that to happen, the Fed doesn't have to just stay where it is. It actually has to get more hawkish 
in the November 2nd and December 14th meetings. I just don't see that. I expect good inflation data, good prints to come in lower, uh, and I think that the jobs market's going to cool off. Jolts rates uh, that Powell talks about have already topped. Uh, so again, you have to incrementally turn the screw and get more tight. Otherwise, what has been done is priced in, and I think the Fed's done enough to bring down inflation. Yeah, you just wonder, though, Barry, by bringing down inflation, are they also bringing down the economy? And if they bring down the economy, they bring down corporate earnings, which then brings down multiples, which then brings down the market. How much faith do you have in the Fed to navigate this? I feel like it's that Denzel Washington movie where he's a pilot and at one point he's completely upside down. Yeah, it's a good movie. Um, seven, there were seven recessions before Paul Volcker, okay? The Volcker shock in 80, 80, around 79 to 81. And in those seven recessions, the market fell about one month before the official recession began. It was declared after the fact. After Volcker, there were five recessions. The market fell right on the dot. A lot of those were panics or crises. So the market's not going to be six, nine, ten months ahead of a recession. You look at yield curves, 10-year minus uh, three-month or 10-year minus two-year. They indicate a recession by mid-23, figure June, July, August. Uh, Market's not looking that far ahead. They're just looking at what the Fed's going to do in the next two meetings and what's going on with the economy in the fourth quarter. Um, So uh, we don't uh, have a lot of reasons to worry about it. I guess if you're just looking out three months, if you look out six months, nine months, yeah, I think there's real trouble. In fact, I think that the Fed's rate hike that they did yesterday was the one that will be looked back on as the mistake. You know, the average market drawdown, I believe, in a recession is the S&P 500 is down something like 31 or 32 percent. I mean, that's the average. Averages can, as we know now from data, averages are generally not a good metric because they tend to skew certain things. But that said, we're down about, what, 25 percent from our high, Barry? So 27 and a half, 27 and a half, even better. So it feels like if you just look at historical averages, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this this means today's the bottom. But at the same point, history says that multiples are kind of where they should be in this economic environment, maybe in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what really drove the market, and we've said this for a long time, is the 10-year tips yield, the real yield. Uh, that thing went from minus 1.2, repressed by QE4 in uh, one year ago, uh, to uh, plus 1.3. So that's a huge swing in the real yield. And it accounts for entirely the drop in the market. A thousand points on the S&P is about five multiples. So now you've got a reasonable multiple. The Fed has done a lot to bring down inflation. Three-month moving average of PCE or CPI inflation is already turned down. Uh, The question is, how patient will they be, and will they dial up the rhetoric at the next two meetings, or will they realize that central bank policy works with a substantial lag, and they've already done a lot, uh, so why dial uh, dial up the knob? That's it. And we're going to find out where this thing goes. But historically, maybe some of the multiples are starting to make sense longer term. Barry Bannister, Steve Fulp, Barry, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We have got a lot left to do here on The Exchange. And coming up, the madman in Moscow doubling down on his war in Ukraine. Is there any hope of a coup in the Kremlin to end this war? We'll ask a former U.S. ambassador to Russia. Plus, our FedEx investors and the macro market in for another surprise after last week's profit warning. And can Costco keep up with inflation? We'll get the action, the story, and the trade. Both companies reporting after the bell tonight. 
And do not forget, CNBC's Delivering Alpha Conference returns in person next Wednesday, September 28th. You're going to get the best ideas from some of the world's best investors. You want to go? There's still room. Go to CNBCEvents.com to register. The Exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. In the biggest escalation of aggression since the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, Vladimir Putin has called for a partial mobilization of his country's military reservists. This is something that has not happened since World War II. And it comes after a number of battlefield setbacks, just outright losses. So how exactly does this insane war end and what will it take to ultimately stop Putin? Joining us now is Michael McFaul. He is former U.S. ambassador to Russia, NBC News, MSNBC, International Affairs analyst. I, uh, ambassador, we saw videos of some rare public displays of anger, some protests in the streets across various cities in Russia. This has got to be a very unpopular move, uh, sending thousands of people, many from the far eastern regions, to die, to slaughter. How does this end? I don't know. And I don't trust anybody who says they do know. Uh, what I can say so far is that Putin is losing the war in Ukraine. Uh, he wouldn't have made this announcement uh, uh, were he to be winning. Uh, he's desperate. Uh, he did not want to do this. Uh, uh, calling up 300,000 reservists to go fight in a war that a lot of people don't understand why they're fighting is a very dangerous political move. But he thinks it's necessary because he's losing on the battlefield. I was talking about this with my wife last night, and she asked, how does this end? I said, I don't know, but I guess the best impression I could come up with based on what I'm reading and people like you that I'm speaking with is a group of generals pop their heads up and say, we are the government now. Western world, you deal with us. Putin is no longer in control, and, and we're now the, the governing force of the nation. Is there any chance that happens? There's a chance, uh, but I want to be humble here. Uh, we're not good at predicting the future. Uh, we in academia are not good at it. The CIA is not good at it either. Uh, when they overthrew Khrushchev in a, in a scenario like you're describing right now, in 1964, when the Politburo pushed him out, uh, a Harvard professor was asked, well, why didn't you predict it? And he said, how could I predict it if, if Khrushchev himself didn't know it was going to happen? Uh, so with that, with that caveat said, I think it's important. Uh, there are a few things we do know. I don't think anybody's happy about this war. 
The generals aren't happy. The intelligence forces aren't happy. Society's not happy. The elite are not happy. The business elite especially are not happy. Nobody's winning from this war. No. Number two, there's now going to be greater costs as a result of this mobilization, which I suspect will trigger new sanctions. I most certainly hope it does. And that is more costly for the Russian people. And then third, Ukrainians have confidence now. They are not just fighting a status quo war on the battlefield. They're pushing the Russians out. I don't suspect that's going to stop anytime soon. So you put all those things together, and I think Putin is in a very difficult position. Add one more thing. Even some of his closest allies are not supporting him directly uh, in this fight. And I think he's, you know, he's not in a very strong position right now. You feel like he's always been, I'm sure you've met him, I met him once in Sochi, Russia, for the Olympics as part of like sort of a group thing. Had no impression of the man other than he was shorter than I thought that he might be. Um, Where do you think he is now? Is he in some bunker in Sochi or some dasha outside of Moscow, three, three stories underground? Because you can only isolate yourself so much before you almost remove yourself from power, especially to your point, Ambassador, when you're angering all the people around you, powerful people around you. Well, a couple of things. Yes, he is isolated. He has been for a long time. Uh, Even when I was ambassador almost a decade ago, I was also at the Sochi Olympics, by the way, as a U.S. ambassador. Did not have a meeting with Mr. Putin back then because our relations were not in very good shape back then. 2014, they've gotten a lot worse. But even back then, he he does live out at his compound outside of the city. He doesn't listen to advisors. He's been in power for two decades, right? That happens with autocrats that stay on too long. Uh, Most certainly, he miscalculated in deciding to invade in February. I think that is apparent to everybody now. He was told it's going to be a cakewalk. You would be embraced by, by Ukrainians and Russian speakers that wanted to be liberated. All that was not true. Grossly underestimated the Ukrainian military. But the problem is that once you've made a bad decision, you either stop digging and compromise or you double down. So far, Putin is doubling down. Uh, And therefore, I suspect tragically, this war is going to go on for a lot longer. I hate to hear that because that's not what the Russian people need. By the way, yesterday I called it what I thought. I thought the war in some ways, Ambassador, was a genocide. I mean, if you look at the pictures of the dead Russian soldiers, they tend to be from the far eastern part of the nations. And is that is that too strong of a statement? I mean, he's sending these people from the rural hinterlands to die in mass. Is this a, is this a form of genocide that he's committing? Well, I'm not a legal expert about the term genocide. I think what he's doing inside Ukraine, of course, is horrific. And the way he is targeting deliberately civilians for political objectives, that sounds like terrorism or genocide to me for sure. But second, you raise a very good point. Uh, He called it partial liberal uh, mobilization, right? You know why? Because the rich are going to pay their way out of having their sons uh, be drafted. And over time, and and instead, the the folks that are going to be drafted come from rural areas, poor areas, non-Russian areas of the Russian uh, Federation. And over time, that will come back to haunt him. Uh, I don't know when, but over time, that is going to fuel resistance to this war. Remember, he can control media, but he can't control what people know about their own sons primarily and sometimes daughters going to war. That's going to be a problem for him in the future. And not coming home. 
And they, and they know and that. And, and they know that. Exactly. And uh, let's hope that this ends somehow soon. Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia. Ambassador, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. By the way, here's a big new headline in Europe's energy crisis and a big flip-flop from the U.K. Britain today reversing its ban on natural gas fracking. The country banned fracking three years ago as part of its climate push. But now the U.K. has to buy much of its natural gas on the spot market. You know from our coverage that prices there have soared. So power costs in the U.K. are out of control. Population is pushing back with a don't pay U.K. movement happening around electricity bills, which are doubling or even tripling for many homes and companies. U.K. government clearly deciding that making sure people can afford to heat their homes in years ahead is the more important policy move than their aggressive climate goals. By the way, this could be good for U.S. companies that do oil field services around the world. Not saying it is not a stock pick. I'm just saying you got to look at names like Schlumber's A, Halliburton and Baker Hughes could be a big new market for them. All right. Coming up. Tech getting hit hard lately. Only seven NASDAQ 100 stocks are higher in the past month, and more than 60 are down more than 10% in just 30 days. Does that mean now is the time to find some value? Plus, the great divide over returning to the office. The bosses want it. You probably don't. We'll dig into the data and why things are bound to get more messy for both employees and workers. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, let's take a look at the markets and focus not on these. Focus on the NASDAQ, 1.5% decline, 169-point drop. The NASDAQ is down on a numerical basis twice as much as the Dow. The Dow is not positive. It's down three-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ really getting hit hard. Solar stocks also getting burned. Sonova, Enphase, Sunrun, others headed for weekly declines. A popular solar ETF, the ticker TAN, having its worst month since April. Ironically, when electricity prices rise, cost of making solar panels also goes up because aluminum is so expensive and carbon intensive to manufacture. On the flip side, healthcare stocks are outperforming today. Eli Lilly getting a double dose of good news. The FDA approving its cancer drug for new uses. And UBS upgrades the stock to a buy. Merck is leading the Dow after one of its cancer drugs was approved for use in China. All right, let's step out of the markets, get a CBC News update with Tyler Mathis. Hi, Brian, and uh, welcome, everybody. Here's your CNBC News update up to the minute. An Indiana judge has issued an order blocking that state's abortion ban from going into effect. The ban was passed in early August, and abortion rights groups sued to block the law. The judge said the ban, with its limited exceptions, violated the state's constitution and is a, quote, significant restriction of personal autonomy. A Mississippi official has pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit fraud and theft in the scandal that improperly paid out millions of welfare dollars across the state. John Davis was a key figure in the state's welfare agency, and the charges carry a minimum of a maximum, excuse me, of 15 years in prison. Remember, some of this welfare money went toward paying for a new volleyball facility that was requested by NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre to benefit his daughter. Favre has continued to deny any wrongdoing. 
And speaking of football, Amazon says that an average of 13 million people watched the streaming premiere of Thursday Night Football last week. That's according to Nielsen's data. The tech giant signed a deal worth about a billion dollars a year to exclusively carry the midweek game through 2023. We'll see what happens this evening. And tonight on the news with Shep Smith, the former president's legal troubles are mounting. How will Trump mount a defense? What's next in the multiple ongoing investigations? More tonight on the news. Brian, back to you. Tyler, thank you very much. All right, still ahead, two big names on deck with results. The first, FedEx, already warning big on earnings and the economy. But could we have seen even worse today? We'll find out. And then there's Costco. Did inflation help or hurt a wholesaler? The key things to watch and out of position on both. Coming up. The exchange, believe it or not, and you should believe it, there are still some companies yet to report their numbers. And there are two key reads on the consumer after the bell. That is FedEx and that is Costco. Let us begin with FedEx. Now, likely, hopefully, not many surprises left for investors in the market after the company's major negative pre-announcement last week, lowering estimates and withdrawing its guidance. Shares coming off their worst day ever on the news and on pace for their worst year ever, down 40%. Frank Holland has the story on FedEx, and David Wagner has the trades. He is portfolio manager at Aptus Capital Advisors. Frank, take it over. What can we expect from FedEx tonight? Well, Brian, you know, no huge surprise, as you mentioned, when it comes to revenue and EPS. The warning, the earnings warning kind of laid that all out. EPS 33% below the estimates. But the question is, is all the bad news priced in? FedEx trades on margins as well as it does revenue and EPS, especially the margins for its express division. That's air delivery where it gets 50% of revenue. So consensus has 6.4% margin on the express division. But here's what we know. Air freight rates are down 45% year over year. That's obviously going to hit this division. Just the previous quarter, pricing was up 20%, obviously a dramatic reversal. Um, And then we also have to look at the current year guidance. That was pulled, but CEO Ross Subramanian, he's maintained and reaffirmed the fiscal year 2025 guidance, which you see is pretty ambitious. 46% annual revenue growth, um, margins in the freight division being incredibly strong, Express being incredibly strong. Um, so the question is, will there be any change to that? We're also going to be listening to commentary on the call when it comes to the dispute that FedEx is having with its ground division that's operated entirely by contractors. A faction of them want more money, and some of them even threaten to not deliver and stop delivering on Black Friday unless FedEx is willing to renegotiate. So a lot to talk about on the call and a lot of things to watch. But the question is, is all the bad news priced into this stock already? We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we're going to find out if it's a kitchen sink quarter, Frank Holland. Thank you very much. Frank's going to be on tonight with those numbers and reaction. Let's get the trade, though. I mean, David, down 40 percent in a year. FedEx, I don't think they're at any risk of going out of business. At some point, is there value here? I don't see any value right now. You know, Frank mentioned 2025 earnings. I don't care about 2025 earnings right now. I mean, the company has continued to deliver a box of bad news. I mean, the pre-announcement last week, as you mentioned, you know, just calls into question the entire bull thesis anyone could have on this name. And it raises significant concerns about execution at what remains, in my opinion, to be a underperforming asset. But y'all mentioned the cat is out of the bag right now. The question is, how much of this was macro driven and how much of it is self-inflicted? Well, if you look at, you know, I think FDX, you know, really 
overextended themselves in returning their capacity. And you couple that with the read-through from some stuff from UPS. I'd say this is more self-inflicted right now. And that's why we Mm. know this earnings ain't about the numbers. They're horrible. You know, it's all about management instilling confidence in investors for the future that the company can focus on profitability and free cash flow. So I think if you believe that this is the only earnings cut that's going to occur, you could maybe dip your toes in here given trough valuations. But I'm staying on the sidelines right now. The yeah. name's going to be in the penalty box for quite some time. Haven't heard it from UPS, DHL, the rails, any other trucking companies. Really bizarre. All right, let's move on. Next up is Costco. The retailer expected to report over $70 billion in sales this quarter, and shares are up almost 9% since their last report back in May. Courtney Reagan joining us now with the story on Costco. What's happening in Issaquah, Washington, Courtney? <laughs> you know, Brian, it does seem like this is one of those pandemic winners that just keeps winning, especially now that we're in this inflationary environment. You have a consumer that play, pays a membership fee and they want to get the most out of that. We're seeing an increase in traffic in all but five weeks so far, according to Placer.ai for 2022 for Costco over the previous year. So people continue to come in. Perhaps they're filling up their cars at the gas station at Costco with the lower prices there because of the membership. And then they're stocking up on all those bulk items and food inside the store, as we know that the price of eating at home still continues to soar. You've got really strong ratings on Costco continuing from Stiefel, from Bank of America, just to name a couple of them. They look at this and say, yes, there is a premium valuation here, but it's worth it. It's worth paying for because of the membership renewal rates, because of the strong sales growth, and because people just frankly see value in Costco right now in this inflationary environment. I'm not joking, Courtney. There's 10 cars in line for every pump at the Costco near me all the time. I it's know. amazing how long people wait for gas. Courtney Reagan, thank you very much. All right, David, what's the trade? What's the investment on Costco? You're shaking your head again. What does that mean? Love it. Yeah. Courtney's right. Winners breed winners, and Costco's a winner. And then, Brian, you're, you're right exactly, too. I think this quarter sets up pretty well for them because we're seeing a lot of potential upside from gas margins because they continue to leverage volume to their benefit from a bunch of market share gain. And, in, I mean, outside of that, I do think there are some market participants out there looking for some commentary around some type of membership hike, something that happens, what, every five, five and a half years. And the last one happened back in 2017. So we are probably due on that. But I'm not betting or gambling on that. I don't think that they're going to announce it. I do understand that companies do have some opportunity to announce price increases during inflationary environments. I just don't see that right now as a company loves delivering on, you know, uh, a valuable client experience at, you know, a good price. But in a nutshell, you know, this company wins through two different ways, increased volume and leveraging SG&A, not by increasing membership hikes. So if you look at the bigger picture, you know, the company tends to get market share gains in these type of environments. This business model was born out of the inflationary 1970s. So I like Costco here. I understand the valuation argument. I I don't have a rebuttal on that, but, you know, I do see some near-term upside given some uh, gas margins. So I'm playing it here near term. There you go. Good margins on those 12-gallon jugs of mustard because who doesn't need that? All right. (laughs) We are just 46 days away from the midterms, not that we're counting. And forget taxes or regulation. One of the biggest fights brewing, it's over social issues, and it's pitting typically pro-business Republicans against the C-suite. That's right, against Elon Moy in the House. And we'll get more from her on that next, coming up.
right, welcome back to The Exchange. With just over six weeks to go until the midterm election, some politicians are turning their ire to a new opponent in order to gain support. That is corporate America. Lon Moy joining us now with the first installment of Business on the Ballot, the first of probably like 46 more to go, Alon. Well, there are six weeks, as you said, Brian, and corporate America is now in the crossfires of the culture wars, but some executives are fighting back. LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman is leading the charge to defeat Republican candidates up and down the ballot who believe the 2020 election was rigged. His top political advisor told me they've recruited several dozen major donors, and he said they got on board because capitalism breaks down without the rule of law. It's been very good for planning purposes to know that when the government that is currently in office starts making mistakes, they can be replaced by a different government through a peaceful transfer of power. That is what's at stake. If that doesn't happen, you start getting uh, much more violence. Now, he pointed to the boycotts of Coke and Major League Baseball over their stance on Georgia's election law last year. More recently, conservatives have called out BlackRock over its ESG policy and Visa and MasterCard over changes that track gun purchases. Their central mission is now anti-business. So are they going to come for us? Yes, of course. Of course they're going to go after Disney. Of course they're going to go after Major League Baseball. And the question is, do we fight? Now, not all tech billionaires feel the same way. PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel has helped bankroll Trump-endorsed Senate candidates in Ohio and Arizona. But even he recently warned, Brian, that Republicans need a positive vision for the country and not just, as he put it, nihilistic negation. Can you say nihilistic negation three times quickly? Maybe Peter Thiel can. Yeah, he, he can do a lot of things, by the way. All right, so we've got just about a, a week left, right, to avoid the possibility of another government shutdown. Uh, but thanks to West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's new energy bill, Congress could be facing, what, another round of brinksmanship. And also talk to us about this, this potential, what's the right word, um, flip from Schumer on the pipelining permitting that Manchin agreed to to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, exactly, Brian. Well, Senator Manchin struck a deal with Democratic leadership to get a vote on permitting reform in exchange for his support of the Inflation Reduction Act, and now he is calling in that chip. Manchin's bill would require regulators to approve the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which runs natural gas through 300 miles of his home state of West Virginia. It also requires a president to prioritize 25 energy projects of strategic national importance for expedited review, and it sets a two-year target for regulators to review other major projects that require a full environmental assessment. But there is not a lot of support for this. Progressives don't like it, and Republicans have already said they're not going to vote for it either. So it seems doomed to fail. The problem, though, is that the Senate plans to attach this to a must-pass government spending bill. Brian, reminder, the deadline to avoid a shutdown is next Friday, so expect some drama on the Hill before then. So they shove it into a bill that sort of has to pass, which makes everybody conflicted because they want one thing but not the other. Is this kind of Schumer versus Manchin in a way? I know they're on the same team, theoretically. Or can both guys win? If it doesn't pass, Schumer's like, see, I'm saving the environment. And Manchin could say, it's those other elite Democrats that did it, not me. And they both come away with sort of a bizarre political victory at the expense of the pipeline permitting process. Yeah, so we'll see how this actually plays out. But it's true, Brian, that sometimes on the Hill, things need to fail in order to pass. So this mm. reminds me of back in 2019 when the government was shut down for something like three weeks and President Trump at the time was calling for uh, the Senate to pass a bill that would reopen the government but also fund his border wall. Oh. Republicans knew it wasn't gonna pass. McConnell put it on the floor anyway, let it fail 
so that they could then say, we at least tried, and then move on to a clean bill that would fund the government and, uh, and reopen government offices. That they have to so. strip that out. Exactly. So you need to take sometimes a little pain yeah. in order to get to the solution in the process. Well, we'll see how much pain there's going to be between maybe Senators Manchin and Senator Schumer, or maybe they're, maybe they're both going to win. We'll see. Elon Moy, thank you very much. Good to see you in house, by the way. Thanks. All right. Coming up, the NASDAQ, the underperformer yet again today. It's down one and a half percent. But listen, you want to buy low for the long term and sell high? We'll get the tech names. Maybe you want to think about buying right now, including this cybersecurity name, down 21 percent this year at your mystery chart, Elon. Do you know who that is? I don't either. We're back right after this. Not a good day for the markets once again. Stocks extending their losses from yesterday, really lost the last couple of weeks, with investors largely pulling out of big cap tech, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, all down more than 7% this month, while Facebook is down 12%. Even the new iPhone is not helping Apple. Shares are down 3%. But is this slide a buying opportunity or a sign to keep selling? Joining us now is James Chalkmaki, his partner at Clockwise Capital. James, good to have you back on again. What do you say? I mean... I want to buy low and sell high, but I also don't want to catch a yeah. falling knife and have these stocks go down another 10%. Right. I mean, I think at this point, Powell is more the problem than the solution. You know, going into this, our base case for 2022 was we will have a recession optically. But now he's throwing everything but through the kitchen sink in order to ensure that we have a deep one. So right now, I think that the calculus has shifted, especially after yesterday's meeting. So the way that we're thinking about it, where do you go with the money? So we think that no matter what the recession um, level is, you know, the, the transformation and technology and the shift to the cloud will persist no matter what. And, and with that in mind, we are looking at companies that are, are facilitating that change. And by the shift to the cloud, we're talking about either uh, on, the, on, the, on the data side uh, for legacy companies um, to the cloud or shifting consumer behavior. And, and we think that there's a reason why Adobe paid yeah. 50 times sales for Figma, because it's a platform that defines the future. So we think we're grossing up those positions while increasing our shorts and our hedges to balance things okay, out. I'm going to ask a weird question, I guess, but you, you kind of yeah. got me going with your first comment. I, I posted something <laughs> yesterday in my social LinkedIn and Twitter showing that the Fed's dot plots one year ago showed no more than a 0.75% Fed funds rate. That was a year ago. That was the highest. Now we're at 4.5%. Right. I mean, they, they, they completely whiffed. Everything. I'm sure Jay Powell's a very nice man, but I do wonder, I do wonder, can tech stocks not take off? Or maybe, let me ask it this way. If there's a change at the Fed, would that help the markets and big tech? Because some people do wonder how this Fed continues. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about Powell that is that he has an aversion to real-time data. You know, everything is just with a telescope into the past. But that being said, as far as tech, we think that the indices, the broader indices, will not, the, the composites of them will not be able to keep up with the rate of change. So we think that from, from the, for the Qs and, and the S&P, you know, the choppiness will continue and we likely won't see the kind of rebound um, that you want to see off the lows. Um, but that being said, I think if you're surgical about it, pick these cloud-first companies, you know, companies we've named like a Snowflake, like, like CrowdStrike in, or like Uber on the... Uh, the consumer side. We think those companies yep. will continue to drive the transformation forward because growth will be scarce during a recession. 
And, and that, those are the places where the growth will be not only most resilient, but also the room for most multiple expansion. But as far as the broader markets, it's your guess is as good as mine with yeah. this Fed. But we do know this. Five years after a recession, the S&P 500 tends to double. But you got to have the stomach to get through the recession first. Mm-hmm. James, good stuff on tech. And also the Fed. A lot of people. I heard Jeff Gunlock yesterday on CNBC tell Scott, maybe, maybe Powell's not the guy for the job, basically. Thank you very much. He was spot on. Thank there you, you go. All right. Thanks, James. All right, coming up, the return to office rift. New data showing a growing divide between what managers want and what employees want. Stick around. All right, welcome back for a brief shining moment. The Dow turned positive. Recession over, economy booming. Now it's negative again. The recession's back on. Using survey data and analytics from its office suite of products, Microsoft found that, surprise, workers and managers continue to disagree over whether employers really need to be working in person to be productive. Steve Kovac joining us now in person. Yes. Is this going to be a more productive conversation? I believe you're here so. And I'm here. Uh, our manager would believe so. But yes, let me tell you, let's break down this data. Okay. And it's showing this huge disconnect, Brian, between managers and employees. That's all according to Microsoft, which surveyed 20,000 people and looked at analytics from its suite of office apps, Microsoft Office, about hybrid work and their return to office. The stunning find here, 85% of managers say they don't have confidence their employees are being productive when working remotely. Shocker, I know. They feel more confident when they can see the productivity in the office, but it's the opposite for employees, Brian. 87% say they're already productive. Microsoft saying the metrics come from uh, office apps proves that too. So people are actually using their work apps while they're working remotely. So there's this huge clash between workers and employees set up here as many uh, companies are requiring people to return to the office this fall. But if employers want their folks coming back, data show they'll have to do more. 73% of employees surveyed said they need better reasons beyond a blanket mandate to return. And that can uh, vary based on age. According to the survey, Gen Z and millennial workers generally want to go to the office because they know their work friends will be there. Gen X employees and the older group care more about their team members being at the office. Still, that overall disconnect between managers and employees feels like it's setting up a huge clash between the way we work. 85% is like all the percent. Pretty much. I mean, that's it's basically nobody has any, anybody's doing anything. And only 12 or so percent of managers, if I'm remembering correctly, felt confident their workers are being productive while working remotely. Well, you, listen, you can look at VPN data. You can look at wh- where people are logging in. I know people that'll like block off their calendar. So you always have the red dot in right. Outlook, but they're actually just blocked off their calendar from <clears throat> eight to five. I know people. Wink. Who oh, may, not you. Not who you, may of course. or may yes. not yeah, have done. Although not I'm you. on TV, so like, you know that I'm here. <laughs> I mean, how does this play out? Is this something, are we going to like a movie, an epic duel at the end? I, I, I Darth Vader gets thrown through the thing? Yeah, so Microsoft, would tell you, the reason why Microsoft, Brian, put this out is because they have a solution for this, of course. Yeah, they, get they, to the office. Yeah, get to the office. But they also have these tools to help you see how much productivity your workers are actually doing. We get these emails, actually. You might notice we get, it's called Viva. I don't even know and what that is. I get them, I delete them yeah, immediately. It'll, it'll send you an update how productive yeah. you were during the week. So that's what Microsoft is pushing here. They claim that's the, the solution. Always- they're always, it's Ray Parker. I always feel like somebody's watching me. Yes. That does it for The Exchange. I'll see you Monday. Power Lunch begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.